It's a good day to be in God's house and worshiping King Jesus. We are in a series called The Coming Renewal. Somebody say renewal. Renewal. I don't know about you, but I could use a little bit of renewal in my life. And if you've ever watched the news ever, you know we could all use a little bit of renewal. So I'm excited about what God's doing here in this church. Before I jump in too much. I always get so excited I forget to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Joey and my wife's name is Kelly and uh, we just get the privilege of leading this new thing that God is doing here. We're a newer church, only been around for a couple years, still figuring out all kinds of stuff and making all kinds of wonderful mistakes along the way. But in the midst of all of it, Jesus is building his church. Amen. So uh, we're in a series called The Coming Renewal. And uh, we've been talking about a number of things here in this series. I have a couple quotes for you here. One from a guy named John Tyson, pastor in New York City. He talks about the decline of Christianity in America and Europe. And here's what he says. He says, you are in the middle of one of the greatest moments of decline in history. And unless we do something radically different, all we will do with our legacy is manage decline. God forbid that what is said of us is that all we did with our legacy as the church in America and Europe or for our lives individually is that we were simply just the last carryover of greater days in the past. God forbid that it's said of us that you and I are just one or two small things from the glory days back then. God forbid that is said of us that we are simply managing decline. I have another quote for you, this one a little bit more hopeful. G.K. Chesterton said this, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it has a God who knew his way out of the grave. What we've been talking about in this series is that when you look through the history of the Bible and the history of the Christian church, what you find is that there are these cycles of decline and renewal. If you ever read through the Old Testament, you're like, is anybody getting it right ever? If you look through the history of the Christian church, you can see the same thing again and again. Great moments of revival and awakening. And what happens is people get comfortable. We get complacent. We like to just kick back and begin to coast. And what happens is it's in these exact moments of decline when it seems like the church is in retreat, when it seems like there's no way out. It's these exact moments that revivals are made of, church. It's these exact moments that awakenings come. Why? Because there's a remnant of people who will say, you are all that we want, God. And it's in that place that great renewals are made. Now, we've been talking the last few weeks about how the ministry of Jesus, we talked two weeks ago, about how the ministry of Jesus is much more, let's say, extraordinary than oftentimes our ministry in the American churches. Jesus confronts the powers of darkness. He drives out the enemy. He starts multiplying food, turning water into wine. He's walking on water. How many of you would like to see a little bit more of that in your life and in our church? Now, last week, again, as we've talked, we didn't just talk about renewal. We experienced a little bit of renewal. Here's the thing, though, and here's what I want to talk to you about today. When I read through the Gospels... When I read through the stories of Jesus, I'm struck by two things. Well, I'm struck by a hundred things, but we'll, we'll talk about two here. The first thing 
is how Jesus' ministry is way more extraordinary than my ministry. The second thing I'm struck with, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, the second thing I'm struck with is that Jesus' ministry also seems way more ordinary than my ministry. And here's what I mean by that. When you see Jesus come on the scene, Messiah, Son of God, God in flesh, does he preach sermons? Absolutely. Does he preach in settings like this where the people of God gather and he communicates the word? Absolutely. But what else is Jesus doing? He's traveling in the boat. He's on the road. He's got a few followers with him. He, he meets with people over meals. He's dialoguing with sinners. He does all this sort of stuff that seems way more ordinary than my ministry. And so I want to tell you here today, I want to tell you a tale of two ministry models. Two ministry models. So the first ministry model, let's call Jesus' ministry model the life together model. Somebody say life together. In Jesus' life together model, yes, he preaches in the synagogue, he ministers in the temple, but he's not limited to those spaces. You see Jesus move outside of those traditional religious channels, and he begins to have meals in homes, sometimes with sketchy people. Most of Jesus' ministry actually happens on the road, on the way to a town, on the way to Jerusalem. It happens up on a mountain in the Garden of Gethsemane, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' ministry was wherever people were. Jesus' ministry happened over meals, lots of food, if you ever read through the Gospels. Jesus was eating all the time. So much so that his enemies thought, this is a way we could bring him down and accuse him of gluttony, because we all know he eats a lot. Nobody, I mean, listen, that, that's a lot of meals. Santo, somebody say santo. Look at that, that's Duolingo. You're all speaking Spanish right now. That was free right there. It means holy. All right, so Jesus here, he's having meals. He's on the road. Does Jesus present these great public sermons? Absolutely. But a lot of his ministry is with these handful of guys. Not only the 12, there were some women who followed Jesus' ministry as well. Jesus had friends. He would uh, dialogue with them. Remember Mary, Martha, Lazarus, these friends that Jesus had. And so when you look through the Gospels, at least when I look through the Gospels, I'm struck by this ordinary, life-together kind of ministry that is continued also in the book of Acts. So when you read through the book of Acts, you see the early church, they would gather all together in the temple for corporate worship, and then they would meet house to house every day breaking bread. Well, that's our first ministry model. Now contrast Jesus' life together ministry model with the ministry model of most churches in America, which I will call the spectator event model. Now the spectator event model is something that is all about gathering people to watch our performances and events, mostly on Sunday mornings, and if you're really spiritual, Wednesday nights. And this is a ministry model, which is, which is mostly anchored in a 90-minute a, a window on a Sunday morning, located in a particular geographic area, 
and is about people coming to watch a number of hopefully gifted people. And if not, it makes that 90 minutes pretty rough. And you see, in, in, in the American church, we have gone all in on this sort of spectator event model, which is about people watching performances as opposed to doing life together. Francis Chan tells a story. Francis Chan's a pastor. He had a, a large church. He had a guy in his church who was involved in um, gangs from the time he was very young. He didn't have any family. And so he basically was raised by this gang. I think he went into the gang at like nine years old or something like that. Years of his life, his teenage years into his 20s, he was part of this gang. And they were basically all he had in the world. This young man gets radically saved, gives his life to Jesus, and starts coming to Francis Chan's church. Now, after a few months, he started seeing him less and less. He'd kind of come here and there. And before you know it, they didn't see him anymore. So Francis Chan, he calls this man, and he thinks, you know, hey, maybe he's fallen back into sin. Maybe he's gone after some wild lifestyle. He reaches out to him, and he says, hey, what, what's the deal? Is, is there things happening? Can I pray for you? Are you struggling with things? He said, actually, pastor, I'm doing fine. I'm not struggling with sin. I haven't stopped following Jesus. And he said, so why, why didn't you keep coming to church? And he said, he said I, I think I just misunderstood what the church was. He said, when I left that gang, he said, that gang was my family. He said, when I got baptized, I thought the church was going to be my new gang. I didn't realize it was just 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. And I remember hearing that, and it struck me so hard. I remember when COVID happened, especially early on, nobody really knew a lot. It was kind of before it got all political, and we put services online. And I remember hearing pastors say, don't worry, we can move everything online and nobody will miss a beat. And I remember thinking, online is a really, really good substitute for people who can't come. That being said, if we can move everything that the church does to a digital space and no one feels like they're missing out on anything, then something's off here. Now listen, the, the building matters. I, I Trust me, we wouldn't be here today if I didn't believe in the corporate gathering. The difference is, is that for Jesus and for the early church, the big corporate gatherings were not the end goal that we have to get people into. This is the launching pad from which we send people out to do mission that they should be on all week long. That like the heart in your body, which pumps blood and oxygen and nutrients so that your eyes can see, your hands can work, your feet can go, this building is not the end goal. It's the hub so that from here, this is a beachhead where we've established the kingdom of God and we send out people from here to the ends of the earth. Now, this building is great. I can't wait. We're doing some renovations soon. I can't wait to tell you about it. I am so excited. People are going to get saved here, baptized here, married here, all of it. And yet the end goal is that this becomes a launching pad for the mission Jesus gave us. Now, I believe here very strongly that, that if we are going to see renewal, if we are going to see revival, if we are going to see awakening, if we're going to see these things come to pass, and I want to stretch your thinking maybe a little bit here, 
I believe from the Holy Spirit, this isn't just an idea that I have, I, I feel this strongly in my spirit, church. I believe that if we're going to see a renewal and an awakening, it's not only going to look like the supernatural, extraordinary ministry of Jesus, although that includes it, it's also going to include the ordinary life together that was modeled by Jesus in the early church. And here's why that matters. We are living in the most isolated and lonely generation that has ever walked this planet. You can look at data again and again and again, and the data about depression and anxiety and loneliness and isolation has only gone up as the years have gone by. Now, there's maybe lots of reasons for this. One reason that I'll give you briefly here is that in traditional cultures, collective identity matters more than individual identity. Here's what I mean by that. In traditional cultures, you kind of put your own individual identity aside because your identity is found in the tribe. It's found through your family, right? You're, you're, you're your last name. That's who you are. This is who we are. We're, we're Italian. We're German. We're Catholic. We're people who do this kind of trade or that kind of trade. That's who you are. That's who our family has been for generations. Now, there's some good to that and some bad to that, right? The nice thing about our moment is that you don't have to be who your parents were, your grandparents were. You could be something different that God has called you to be. The problem is, in, in secular society, we invert that. So we put the collective identity aside, and we put the individual identity at the top. Now, again, there's some benefits to that. The downsides are, is that we see community as restrictive. And here's what I want you to see here. Community sounds like a good idea until you hang out with people. I know, it caught me off guard too. I wasn't ready for it. I remember when I first started, the Lord was showing me stuff. I was listening to certain people. I'm like studying and praying. And I'm like, this is going to be great. Community, life together, I'm all in. You get some people together and it's like, mm, I don't know about you guys, right? And let me, let me tell you a secret here. The problem is actually not those one or two people you think are the problem. If you actually, if, you have, if you've been here a little while and you haven't had conflict yet, don't worry. It's coming. It doesn't take me long, personally. I've had to apologize to half of you already, right? And, and, and if I could be honest with you, you might think that the problem is this person or that person, but guess what? If you go to another church, there's people there too. And can I tell you an even bigger secret? It's not a church problem. Have you ever worked with anybody at your job? Have you ever, have you ever been on a team ever? How, are you married? Don't say amen too loud to that one. Me and Kelly, we don't have this problem. We're just perfect, I hate to tell you, but... We're just a standard for you guys to emulate. We have no issues in our marriage. But here, here's the truth. Everybody wants community. We want the idea of community, but we don't want the cost of community because it's restrictive, it's narrow, it restricts our freedoms, our ideas, our preferences. And here's what I want you to know today. You can either have everything your way or you can have community. You can't have both. You can't. And you see, in our culture today, 
every bit of advice that you hear, whether it's through some self-help influencer online, some business book, even pastors, it's music, it's TV, everything in the world is telling you one piece of advice, and it's follow your heart, follow your own dream, do whatever you want, forget the naysayers, be who you're supposed to be. And the problem is we have a culture who's done all of that, and guess what? We're alone. Shocker. I have some data here for you. I read a book not too long ago called The Lonely Century, not a Christian book, and they found all sorts of crazy data about loneliness in the modern world. Here's what they found. One thing I'll tell you here. They found they did a study on mice, and what they did was they put mice in isolation for a couple hours, and then they introduced that mouse to another one. And what happens was the longer that mouse was in isolation, the more hostile it was to newcomers. And what they found was that that mirrored life in human society as well. That the more isolated we are, the more polarized we are. The more isolated we are, the less grace we have for people. The more isolated we are, the less trusting we are of people that we don't know. More data here. This was absolutely wild. They found that not only is loneliness bad for your emotional health, it's actually killing us physically as well. Here's what she said. The lonely body, and it, and it might be on the screen, the lonely body is susceptible to other illnesses that it would normally be much more capable of fighting. It is more prone to serious disease. If you are lonely, you have a 29% higher risk of coronary heart disease, a 32% higher risk of stroke, and a 64% higher risk of developing clinical dementia. If you are lonely or socially isolated, you are almost 30% more likely to die prematurely than if you are not. That's wild. That not only are we, are we emotionally suffering, but physically there's actual scientific data about this. And not only is loneliness bad for you, but then on the flip side, community turns out actually extends your lifespan. It did a study on this one group of Jewish people called the, the Haredim. It's this like ultra-Orthodox Jewish sect. They live on communes away from society. And they wanted to study this, individual, this uh, group of individuals. And what they found was their diet is actually not that great. They looked at their data uh, for all their food, don't get a lot of fruits and vegetables. They're not particularly healthy. They uh, are actually way deficient in vitamin D. You'd think if you lived in the desert, you'd get lots of sun. But they have all this, like, clothing because it's very conservative and very strict. They're wildly mal uh, malnourished with vitamin D, which is absolutely important for your immunity. And then beyond that, they're pretty financially poor as well. Most of the men give up work to study the Torah and the law. And what they found was, in spite of all of these things, that the men have a three full year longer lifespan than men just on the other side, outside of their commune in the same region of Israel. And the women have a year and a half longer lifespan than the women around them. And what the researchers concluded was that the difference, the only thing that they could attribute it to, because it wasn't health, wasn't finances, wasn't any of these other things, the only difference was that they lived life in community. Their whole lives every day are spent working together, worshiping together, studying together. Their holidays are like days-long events. 
When there's weddings or funerals, they last days at a time. And they have weekly Sabbath meals where it's not just you and your parents and your one sibling. It's like extended grandparents, 14th cousins, the neighbor from down the road. And they have this weekly meal together. And they found that they live years longer on average than the the people just outside the commune right next door. This echoes data from the United States as well. There was a study that was done in the late 90s in the U.S. that found that people who are part of a religious community every week had a seven-year longer lifespan than those who did not. And the difference was, and this is big, and these are not Christians putting out these studies, it wasn't people who had a religious faith that lived seven years longer. It was the people who were part of a religious community were the ones who lived seven years longer. What, what does all this data mean for us today? What does all of it mean? Here's what I think it means. In the moment that we're in today, it's not enough to invite lonely people to sit and watch our performances. People can come in, sneak in the back, show up late so they don't have to talk to people, and sneak out before anyone catches them. Some of you do it. I got my eye on you. I'm coming for you. I'm bringing you into this community whether you like it or not. It's coming. It's happening. Don't fight it. It's not enough to put on performances for isolated people because I believe that in the world that we live in, the church is not going to be impressed by our buildings, by our music, by our preaching. Hopefully all of those things are good. We would love to renovate the building. We have really good musicians here. I'm trying to preach my best every week. We want to do all of these things very well. We believe in doing them excellently, doing them efficiently. I believe in all of that. But here's the thing. To a lost and broken world, you know what's really compelling? Not my sermons. Turns out they don't care about them. I know, kind of hurts my feelings. They're not interested in our building or our music. What is compelling to an isolated world is our communal life together. It's a life together which shows a divided world, an angry world, a frustrated world, a lonely world, that there's a different way of being human. There's a different way to do life in this world. There's a different way of following Jesus. And it's not just you and I building our own private spirituality. Did you know Jesus never said he would build your private spirituality? What he did say was he would build his church. And the church, Jesus says, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Did you know every book of the Bible was written to communities? I know, we talk about it like, it's just this love letter that Jesus wrote to me. And kind of, but not really. Don't get me wrong, it is for you. It will absolutely change your life. But every single gospel, every single letter of the New Testament was either written to a church or the leader of a church so that you and I could build a life together which is radically different from everything else the world has to offer. You see, the reason Christianity went from this weird little Jewish sect to the the most dominant religion in the world is because they did something unbelievably different from everybody else. And you know what that was? 
It was that in Jesus Christ, that on the cross, not only did our sin and our old life die, but our old identities died too. If you read through the letters of Paul, he's like, hey, listen, Jew and Greek, male and female, none of that matters anymore. That's the verse that Jen read. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so what happened in the early church, they were this weird, baffling thing that at one table, you had the rich and the poor, you had masters and slaves, you had Jews and Gentiles, you had young and old, and when they came to Jesus' table, nothing else mattered because it was washed away in the blood of Jesus. And people that hated each other out there in the world began to serve one another in love. They began to call each other brother and sister, and the world looked at this radical community, which was torn apart by men looking down on women, and Jews looking down on Gentiles, and masters lording it over their slaves, and in this world that was divided, that was fractured, that was so tribalized, the church was this community that said, hey, only one boundary matters, and that's the blood of the Messiah. Only one marker matters, and it's his righteousness on our behalf. It's not, hey, look at me, look at what I've done, look at my accomplishments. Accomplishments. No, it's the blood of Jesus. And so this, this baffling community began to transform the world. Listen, not because they were impressive. They were the opposite of uh, impressive. They had nothing. They were poor. Most of them didn't have a whole lot. They gathered in homes because it was illegal to meet together. They didn't have impressive buildings or impressive performances. It was their life together that was attractive to a divided world. What words come into your mind when you think of revival? What words come into your mind when you think of awakening? What words come into your mind when you think of God sweeping through and a great renewal coming? I believe that, yes, it is the extraordinary ministry of Jesus to drive out the enemy, the extraordinary ministry of Jesus to lay hands on the sick, to raise the dead, to drive out demons, to announce the good news that God is king, that Jesus is Lord. But I also believe that it's this communal life together which will begin to draw lost people. I want to read you a few verses here as we close. It says this in John 13, 34. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Another one, John 17, 21. May they all be one. Jesus is praying here. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Look at this. Look at this here for a minute. May they be one. See that first phrase right there. May they be one. Look at the last phrase. So the world may believe that you sent me. How do we get the world to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is? How do we get the world to believe that he really was sent from the Father, that he really is the Son of God in flesh, that he really is the Messiah? I, I've been to a, a, a lot of like church growth type things. There's a lot of strategies. I've read a lot of books. And turns out none of them actually say, why don't you guys just love each other? I'm going to be honest. 
You know why? Because that's a lot harder. It's, it's easier to just build some systems and get some, you know, cool and attractive people and put on a nice show and get some good logos and use some good technology. And I'm not saying any of that's evil. It's just that it's not a substitute for loving each other. It's not a substitute for doing life together. It's not a substitute for gathering house to house, breaking bread, being there for each other in need. And I get it. It's hard. It really is. It, it is so much easier to say, you know what? Church is crazy. People are crazy. You're crazy. I'm going to do my own thing. I get it. I relate to it. I feel it. And yet what I have found in my life is that oftentimes when I'm reading the Bible and I'm studying the Word and I want to know what God is like, sometimes He speaks to me that way. But sometimes it's somebody else in my life telling me things that I don't want to hear. Did you know that's how God speaks to you? Sometimes when you're trying to hear the voice of God, it comes through prayer and intercession. I believe that. But sometimes the voice of God sounds like that person next to you that's driving you crazy. I know, you didn't want to hear it. Someone had to tell you. Sometimes... When you want to grow in holiness, you want to be more like Jesus, you want to walk, hallelujah, Siri's preaching to you. Bless God, she got excited too. Sometimes when you want to be holy, you want to be like Jesus, you want to be shaped into his image. Lord, Lord, do these things in my life. I want to be the man you've called me to be, the husband, the father, the worker, the whatever. He doesn't just magically drop it on you. He puts someone in your life the proverb says is like iron sharpening iron. And as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Guess what? It's not fun being sharpened. You can read that verse and be like, hallelujah, bless God. We're just growing together. And then it's somebody who thinks about church in a way that you don't think about church. It's somebody who thinks about God in a way you don't think about God. It's someone who interprets this verse or that verse in a way you don't interpret it. And I'm not talking about the fundamentals. I'm not talking about abandoning core tenets of the faith. I'm talking about God's voice and God's will and God's way coming through the people in this room. You will never be the person God wants you to be because you go live as a hermit somewhere and you just have wild encounters with God. I wish that was the case. And I'm telling you that as a pastor. And yet what God has invited us into is this communal life together. And when we actually begin to love each other, I believe that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about. And the world will believe that he's from the Father. Call me crazy. You want to hear our, our, our super duper top secret church growth strategy at City Alive? It's that we love each other. Yeah, but Joey, you got to be cooler than that. Sorry. Yeah, but Joey, you got to have something that, that nobody else has. Sorry. You got to be better than all those other churches out there because we got to get people here. Sorry. The, 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 the strategy that we have here is, is both the extraordinary and the ordinary life of Jesus, inviting people in. And you see, when we begin to love people that it's hard to love, we actually tell the world that God loves people who are hard to love. Listen, we're, we're telling the world about a God who loves everyone, and we can't get along with each other. And listen, don't, don't hear this as like, Joey heard about some drama and he's trying to deal with it. There's no subtext here. 
I'm talking at the highest level, the lifestyle of you and I as individuals and as a church and out there in the world. And guess what? The world doesn't believe in our message of a God who loves sinners because we can't get along with each other. And it's when you and I begin to model a love of forgiveness, a generosity, a sacrifice, a laying down of our own wants and preferences that maybe then will they believe in a Messiah who laid down his wants, his privileges, his preferences. And that when you and I lay ourselves down, our lives are the sermon. The best sermon to a lost world is not the one I'm preaching here. It's our radical life together. It's our sacrificial life together. And when you and I begin to lay aside the offense, we begin to forgive sin, we begin to let people who disagree with us have a say, we invite them into the table, guess what happens? The world begins to believe in a God who invites them to the table. When you forgive that person, in your house church, on your ministry team, in this room, at your work, in your home, wherever it is, when you and I begin to forgive those people, the world will see a God who forgives. Not because we talk about it, but because we've been changed by that forgiveness. And listen, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about the people that are easy to love. I'm talking about, I'm talking about those people, whoever those people are for you. We live in a world that's trying to turn everybody against each other. And so whoever those people are for you, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus never saw people as the enemy. He saw them in bondage to the real enemy. And the most most spiritual thing you can do is love that person that's hard to love. Can I be honest with you? It's hard to love people when you think they're your enemy. Yeah, but Joey, those... Those people look different, they dress different, they live different, they vote different. Guess I can't love them anymore. And again, I'm not not talking about getting soft on sin. You guys have heard me preach hard messages. But when you and I love those people that are so hard to love, And instead of complaining about that person, what if you prayed for them as much as you whined about them? What if you began to pray for God to bless them instead of complaining about those people on Facebook? You guys weren't ready for that one. That's okay. I know. I hit hit too close to home on that one. That if we can begin to invite people to our table, we'll begin to show the world about a God who welcomes them into his table. When you begin to welcome those people into your family, we'll begin to show the world about a God who welcomes people into his family. The people who are hard to love, messed up, the people who've done terrible things, committed terrible sins with a track record, with a past, with a list of stuff they never should have done in a million years, and that you and I can begin to love those people. That's when renewal comes. It's easier, it's easier to speak in tongues and dance and blow a shofar, and I'll do that right now. Love, you got? You mean I gotta love someone? You sure I can't just pray a little longer? I'd happily do that. 
You sure I can't just speak in tongues and, and lay hands on the few people that I'm friends with? No. Love one another as I have loved you. That's when renewal comes. That's when awakening comes. That we are inviting the world, not to 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, but into a radical life together. Now we're going to close here by coming to King Jesus' table like we do every week. And if you didn't get that little bread and cup when you came in, just slip up your hand nice and high. We want to make sure you get taken care of. Why do we do this every week? Why do we do this every week? Because as Jen read, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. And this, this meal that we do here, not only is it a, a memorial of Jesus' meals, but it's a reminder of our life together. You know, back in the, the older days, they would, they would share the same bread, drink the same cup. That doesn't work these days. Anybody want to be the last person to drink from that cup? But in spirit, we're receiving the same, the same bread, the body of Christ. We all, our, our lives together, the reason that we're here is because of one cup, the blood of Christ. And this reminder is not just me and my private walk with Jesus and what he did for me. It's a reminder that when, that when I got him, I got all of you too. It's a reminder that we're all part of the same body.